You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been in Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. What are some first encounters or first experiences you've had that you will never forget? And I was trying to think of ones maybe I've had uh, learning to drive a stick shift uh, was an experience I will never forget. Uh, Maybe getting married, maybe the first time you met your spouse uh, is something you won't forget. Um, The birth of your children, uh, the birth of your grandchild, Uh, We we all have certain first experiences, first encounters that that we we won't forget. Because first experiences and first encounters are memorable and even at times formidable. Well, in John's account of the resurrection, he relates to us three first experiences or encounters. And we're going to take some time to look at these three first experiences, first encounters that tell us so much 
about the risen Savior and what it means to proclaim that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's begin with the first that you're going to see in verses one through three. Uh, the very first of the encounters is arriving at the empty tomb. And so you notice in verse 20, it begins and says, uh, now on the first day of the week. So the Sabbath has concluded. Uh, the sun is partially coming up. We're talking about dawn. Uh, the first occasion you could go do something like this. And there are three main characters in this encounter throughout John 20. There's Mary Magdalene, uh, there's Peter, and then it mentions the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which we, we know is a reference to the Apostle John, the author of this letter. So the three main characters are Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. But in looking at their arrival at the tomb, we're focusing now on Mary Magdalene, who arrives. And so as you look at Mary's reaction spelled out for us, notice in verses one through three, uh, that she came to the tomb early while it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so in considering Mary's reaction, Mary Magdalene, is mentioned in all of the Gospels. She is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the good ways to describe her is that she's pictured as being there at Christ's crucifixion. And now she's pictured at being one of the first to arrive at his empty grave. So in other words, she's last at the cross and she's also first at the grave. If you read Mark 16, it does appear that there's a group of women that kind of come in this company, uh, that Mary Magdalene is accompanied by Mary, the mother of James, Salome, but it, but it seems like she gets there just a little bit ahead of the others, and her first encounter is the arrival and the tomb is empty. But reading on further in verse 2, her immediate response is, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Uh, in other words, we, we can picture from this that Mary, seeing the stone rolled away, assumes grave robbers, assumes that someone has gotten in there and, and taken the body. And it's very important that in this sense, even though Mary Magdalene was a faithful follower of Christ, we see something there that is true of all the disciples. They did not anticipate or expect that Christ would rise from the dead. Even Mary keeps saying, where, where did you put the body? Uh, let me know and I will, I will get the body and come take it. So in this very first encounter, she's shocked that the stone is rolled away, assumes what would be at that time the obvious, it must be grave robbers. Uh, in fact, if you look back in historical records in the first century, grave robbing was so popular that the Roman Empire made it into a capital offense, a capital punishment, if you were caught tampering with graves. 
So Mary's initial reaction makes sense on one level. Someone stole the body. They got in there. Who does she go to? Her reaction is she will run to tell Peter and John, which seems a little surprising when you think about it. Uh, the last time we heard anything about Peter, at least in John's gospel, is in John chapter 19. And you have certainly the references to the crucifixion. And, and as we know, Peter's denial of Christ. That's where it was left. But yet, is it possible maybe Mary did not know about that denial? Uh, is it possible in between those hours of the denial and Christ's resurrection that Peter truly repented? Uh, and, and we know he was in tears, that he genuinely repented of this, and again is seen as like the, the leader in the group. Um, and she runs to tell John as well. Assuming they're probably in close proximity, they, they may have even been in the same upper room that the events happened before the crucifixion. So we have Mary's reaction, her arrival at the empty tomb, the first of the three first encounters. But now let's go to the next first encounter, and that is inspecting the empty tomb. So she tells Peter and John what she has seen. And then as we look further, we see in verse 5 and verse 8, the reaction of each of these disciples. And so notice in verse 5, or let me back up to verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So both of them move quickly. Uh, notice it says both were running. That, that word running is the root from our word to track. So you think of like a track, a hike, something physical exertion. Uh, this is an immediate response. We, we need to go see what's going on here. And, and as they were both running, you have this little commentary John makes. Uh, both running, but, but John gets there a little bit ahead of Peter. Maybe Peter stopped and got coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, we don't know. Uh, but, but, but John gets there a little bit ahead of Peter, but they're both racing to get there. But now we want to look at, at their reaction. And, and so we'll focus first in verse 5 and verse 8 on John's reaction. And so it says, referring to John, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So there's a, a little bit of interruption in the action. He looks, he sees these grave cloths that the body would have been wrapped in, uh, which Mary Magdalene and the women were coming to finish the anointing process with the spices and everything else. Uh, but John sees that, and he goes no further at that moment. Then there'll be a little interruption. Peter will go in, and we'll get to him. But then drop down to verse 8. In verse 8, we're told, Then the other disciple, John, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He And he saw and believed. 
So it might be helpful because we all have different images of, of what did this burial chamber look like? Uh, and, and the best way to describe it is that the body would have been placed in there vertically. So it's, it's a chamber that would have probably a three foot diameter opening in the front of it, which would explain why you need to sort of stoop, to, to bend, to peer in. It, it's difficult to see in. Then it, chambers were only maybe three to six feet deep. So, so not tremendously big. And they would have had a stone shelf inside where the body would have been placed on that. So there's not a lot of room to, to go in and walk around or anything like that. The purpose of these are to have bodies in there until later after decay, the bones are collected and then put in a bone box. So you may recall that the tomb that he's placed in is maybe may resemble more like a cave, but it was of Joseph of Arimathea, who was relatively wealthy. That's a little detail that's important because to place a criminal in any other kind of tomb would defile those other bodies that might be in there. And so Joseph having this tomb without any others in there would explain why there was no issue with him, according to Jewish law, taking the body of Christ and depositing it in the tomb. So that helps us kind of picture, they, they literally did have to stoop down. And, and this stone that would have been placed in front of that typically was on a track. So it would like slide back and forth, but it was heavy enough where once it was dislodged from that track, one person could not put it back. But notice it says of John, this second time that he finally does go in, he says, I saw and believed. And yet the belief here is a, an understanding of what was physically seen, but not necessarily a spiritual grasp of what happened. Because in fact, one of the other gospels reports, both Peter and John leave marveling at what they saw. Not, not that they fully grasp this and said, yes, Jesus must have risen from the grave. But, but they were kind of left speechless, not really knowing what to make of this. So in this second of the first encounters, we have this inspection of the empty tomb. But now we haven't addressed Peter's reaction. And so if we look now at verse six and seven, it says, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. Uh, doesn't this sound a lot like what we know of Peter's personality? Uh, very, very impulsive. Um, he, he like heads straight and wants to look in the tomb. Where, where John, for whatever reason, is hesitant to do that. Peter's like, I'm all in. Let, let, me, let me look at this. Maybe we can explain that from the fact Peter had denied Christ. Maybe he was wondering, is, is Christ truly not there? Uh, what does that mean now for my relationship with the one that the last time he had eye contact with Jesus, at least recorded, was at 
his denial of Christ. But it says in verse 6, Then Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up by itself. So here's another interesting detail. Uh, why is that important? That the John would want to record that, yes, the, the, the linen cloths were left there, but this typical head covering was separate from the others. And, and you'll notice, at least in the ESV, it talks about it was folded up. Uh, some translations have more literally, it, it was separate from that and it was kind of rolled up. Well, I think the importance of that detail is not to make a big deal out of, well, how was it folded? You know, was it in some unique shape? Um, I, I heard someone commenting on this just this past week where they were saying, well, the folding of it was like a napkin. That would have been a napkin like he used on a table and it was a sign of fellowship. Like that's all reading way too much into this. Uh, the most important point to take away from this is it clearly would indicate this was not the result of a grave robber. Uh, a grave robber would be in and out of there as quickly as possible. If, if anything was removed, it would have been just tossed and thrown all over the place, not somehow picked up and put separate from the others. So here is a, a piece of evidence that would counter what would have been the initial thought and reaction. Someone got in there, it was a grave robber, but now here is a fact that says, no, it definitely was not a grave robbery. And clearly this is a fulfillment of scripture. But we have the commentary on, on how did Peter and John process this inspection of the empty tomb. We, we have the facts down, uh, but you notice in verses 9 and 10, there, there's a spiritual commentary that's helpful to us. There it says, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So there's an aspect here where they haven't received the Holy Spirit in full. They've taken in the facts, but they really are not able to fully comprehend the significance of what this means. And to say here that uh, they didn't understand the scripture. So notice Jesus had repeatedly said to them, he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die, but he will be raised on the third day. And the, and the way that is written there is as an indicative, like this is a must. Like Jesus mustn't just die. He must rise again. So it's useless for us to speak of, well, in Christ where we're declared righteous if he has not risen from the dead. Because our justification is tied to Christ's resurrection. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, probably one of my favorite passages for Resurrection Sunday. Um, where Paul talks about 
how the resurrection is the hinge in the Christian faith. Um, that, it, that if we don't have a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that then there is no Christian faith. There's no foundation. 1 Corinthians 15, and follow along as I read verses 12 through 19. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And there Paul argues specifically back and forth, reiterating, if there's no resurrection, you have no faith. And then there's no assurance as to what happens to you when you die. You have no assurance as to those who have already died, where they are and what they're experiencing, if the reality of the resurrection and the empty tomb is not an established fact. And so we've gone through two first encounters so far that, that arriving at the empty tomb, Mary Magdalene's initial reaction, um, grave robbers, I've got to go help Simon and John. Then we've looked at the inspecting of the empty tomb. And then we come to the third and final of the first encounters. And that is considering Mary Magdalene's response. So return with me to our text, John chapter 20. And our final encounter deals with transformed by the empty tomb. And so we pick up in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. Peter and John have left. We're, we're assuming the other women that came with her have, have kind of arrived. But the focus is that Mary stood there weeping. Now she's weeping because she does believe Jesus is dead. And, and this would be one of the worst disgraces of a dead body if someone stole it and disgraced it. So she, in a sense, is, is so emotionally tied to her love for Christ that, that she doesn't want to leave that spot. And I've seen people sometimes at funerals who, who have a hard time just leaving the, the body that's there. It's like they, they just want it to somehow last longer. Well, there we have Mary, but then notice now she stoops to look inside. And as she does, we have the reaction 
of Mary here, a hurting and grieving disciple of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, this is a fascinating scene because she sees two, two angels dressed in white, but she is so focused on where is Jesus that she doesn't even seem to respond to the miraculous event. There's, there's two angels there. But notice what the angel says to her. Having said this, in verse 14, we read, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So her question has not changed. Where have they taken Jesus? Where did they lay his body? Please let me know so I can go get it. And that's the same question she presents to the angels. Where, where is he? Can you tell me so I can get him? Now, Jesus appears, but at this point, she does not recognize him. His appearance is veiled to her. In fact, she will make an assumption, which again, makes sense. It's early in the morning. These grounds needed to be tended. Uh, this must be the gardener. Who, who else would arrive this early in the morning? at a place like this. But keep in mind here that when we think of Mary, she is a follower of Jesus Christ. And the way Jesus Christ responds to her, I think also says something, how Christ responds to us when, when we're hurting, when, when we don't understand something, uh, when our faith is, is weak and not what it should be. And so let's look now at verse 16. Um, Jesus repeats in verse 15, as you see, the same thing. Why are you weeping? Uh, he adds that, whom are you seeking? And then it says, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus responds in one word. Jesus said to her, Mary. Wouldn't you love to be able to hear the tone and the way that Jesus said her name? That now by God's grace, immediately she knows who this is that said that. Because Mary responds and says, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is immediately recognizing she is inferior, speaking to one who is superior, that, that she is recognizing the authority, that this is the very same Christ that days earlier she stood at the, the base of the cross and saw him crucified. That she's not saying, well, you're someone like him, or I'm glad you're another one sent, that, that this is the very same teacher that she grew to love and to follow. What, what, a, what a picture of a transforming encounter with, with her Savior. 
But then we get to verse 17, which, which might sound somewhat abrupt here. Uh, Jesus is going to respond. And what he says is, uh, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Some translations have that a little more abruptly, stop holding me. And, and you want to say, why did Jesus say that? Sometimes we, we jump to this. Well, he's saying that because he hadn't yet received his glorified body, and he hadn't gone back to the Father completely. Now, that part is true. He had not ascended completely to remain with the Father for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, that will occur after his 40-day post-resurrection appearances. But that contradicts other gospel accounts where we're told that they did hold on to Jesus, where he didn't correct them. And we can assume that probably Mary at some point like grabbed his feet just out of the reaction of seeing the one she loves desperately. Um, remember what Leslie said in the beginning when we were talking about when we can physically get together um, and the time frame for that. And she said, well, I just can't wait to hug everyone. Well, don't you think Mary's immediate reaction would have been to, to somehow touch Jesus, to, to grab him? So Jesus was not correcting her for initially maybe hugging him, grabbing him. But the tense here is, you need to stop holding me. And could it be that Jesus wanted to do two things, possibly? One, indicate to Mary that because he is now risen, that relationship has changed. It, it is a uniquely different and deeper relationship now that he has defeated sin and death. And also possibly to send a message to Mary that whereas she might say, I don't ever wanna have you leave me again. Jesus was actually saying, when I leave the next time, you will actually have a closer presence with me because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that's something for all of us to think about. Jesus would say to his disciples, I, I have to go to the Father. If I don't go to the Father, you will not receive the Holy Spirit. So in other words, when Jesus ascends, that's not that we're losing his presence. We're actually getting his presence in return, but in a much stronger means. The Holy Spirit will now come and live in us, not just be among you like Christ was among Mary and others, but he will dwell and be in us. I read a comment the other week that I thought is, is so accurate, and it was simply this, the resurrection is the cure for everything. It's not true. It is, it's not just a cure for our struggles. Uh, when you have aches and pains, isn't the resurrection the ultimate cure for that? When we worry about living in a pandemic or what variant virus is next down the road, the resurrection is the cure for that. 
And so here Jesus Christ is speaking of that transforming encounter that we see in Mary Magdalene, that we'll see later on unfold in other examples in scripture, should be just as real for us. And you notice at the end of this account in verse 17, Jesus references that change when he says, I'm ascending to my father and your father. Think of the Lord's prayer it was, you are to pray as a model prayer to our father. Now Jesus is broadening that dimension. He's my father and he's your father. That this is my God and it's your God. And truly being transformed by first encounters will result in greater obedience and service. Because Jesus gives Mary some instructions. He says, go and tell the others what you have seen and heard. And the, the, again, the promptness where, where Mary's love for Christ was evident in the, the earliness which, which she went to the tomb. And the lateness in which she stayed at the cross. To now here in verse 18, Mary went and announced. She went and told the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And so it is true that first encounters, first experiences can be memorable and very formidable. And so on Resurrection Sunday, I challenge all of us to, to stop and think for a moment, how has your encounter with the resurrection, with the risen Christ, how has it changed your life? To reflect on that. But then also to follow that with another more relevant question. How is the risen Christ changing your life? Because this isn't a day to be observed merely as a formality or a, a once-a-year doctrine that we, we brush off and dress up, uh, but it's to, to drive that home, that every encounter, every day with Christ, through his word, through prayer, through worship, should be memorable, should be formidable, should be transforming. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you that the, the news that Christ is risen is as relevant, as powerful today as it was when this first happened over 2,000 years ago. May that be so by your spirit in each of us who have read this account, who have studied this account, and are called to live according to this account. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.